So let me ask you a question. Do you struggle with misplaced priorities in your life? Or does your life seem to lack meaning and purpose? Or are you weary from the rat race of life? If so, Solomon has advice. Here it is. Scale your life back. Focus on the simple. Be faithful. Enjoy life. And above all, enjoy the relationships that God has given you in your life. Only you can live your life. No one else can live it for you. So learn from the Koheleth. Learn from the preacher, as he refers to himself, Solomon does, how to live well with meaning and purpose and calm assurance in God's providence. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. You might not be familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, but it's a lot like the book of Proverbs. There's a lot of practical wisdom contained in this book. And um, if you've not been with us, we've been going through the book of Romans, and we just ended chapter 3. We're getting ready to launch into what many would say is the most important section in the book of Romans. And once we launch into that, I don't want to stop. We will be in that for several, several weeks. I don't want to break away from that. But I think there's a somewhat natural division between Romans 3 and Romans 4 that allows us on a Sunday like this to sort of take a time out, go in a different direction. I want to encourage your hearts. I want to encourage you regarding what the Lord is doing at this church. I want to encourage current members and sort of remind you why it is that we are here and what it is our goal is. And I also want to communicate to the new members... um, the blessed fellowship this is, and what our responsibilities are to one another. And so that's why I've chosen to preach from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. You found your place there. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to look at um, this chapter in its entirety. Follow along as I pick up in verse 1. Solomon writes under inspiration, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king with no longer, who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. May the Holy Spirit bless the reading of his word. Please be seated and let's ask the Lord that he might bless our hearts to understand these truths. Father, we are grateful for your word, the clarity of your word, the power of your word. We pray that our time this morning might be beneficial to our hearts as we consider the importance of serving one another, loving one another, and being reminded that you have provided people in our lives that we need. We need you above all things, but we also need one another. Help us to recognize that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
The title of the message is People Priority, and the reason that I've titled it that is that I believe Ecclesiastes 4 deals just with that very thing, the importance and priority of having people in our lives. And so anytime that you're having new members join a church, it's a wonderful opportunity to remind one another of why we are here. We are here to serve one another. Many of you are familiar with Jonathan Edwards' resolutions that he made. There are some of my favorite because he was a man who was intent on living life to the fullest. His first resolution said, Resolved, I will do whatever I think will be most to God's glory and my own good for profit and for pleasure for as long as I live. His fifth resolution I like as well, Resolved, to never lose one moment of time, but to seize the time to use it in the most profitable way I possibly can. His sixth resolution, to live with all my might while I do live. That is to give everything. And then number eight, I'm resolved to act in all respects, both in speaking and doing, as if nobody had ever been as sinful as I am. And when I encounter sin in others, I will feel as if I had committed the same sins or had the same weaknesses or failings of others. I will use the knowledge of their failures to promote nothing but humility and even shame within myself. Jonathan Edwards, what an amazing man. He knew how to live life. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes has really puzzled Christians through the centuries. What is the point of this book? What is its structure? Is it simply an ancient version of existentialism? Existentialism is a philosophical theory that, uh, by the way, is not rooted in Scripture. Existentialism is a philosophical belief that says each individual is responsible for creating their own meaning and purpose in life. We don't need authorities. We don't need teachers. We certainly don't need the authority of God's Word. It is your inner experience, the inner experience of the individual through which truth can be found. And therefore, existentialism is intellectual because it focuses on the mind. It is also emotional because it focuses on feelings. And it is also volitional because it emphasizes your will to create your own meaning and purpose in life. Now, because the author of of Ecclesiastes says, for example, in verse 2, vanity of vanities... Or because he says in verse 13 of chapter 1, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He says that in chapter 1 verse 13. And in chapter 1 verse 2 he speaks about vanity of vanities. All is vanity all throughout this book. And so many people think that the writer was an ancient existentialist. That is far from the truth. If you notice in chapter 1 and verse 1, he says the words of the preacher, the koheleth in Hebrew, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. We're speaking about Solomon. Solomon was the writer of Ecclesiastes. He is the one who identifies himself. He was not an existentialist. Solomon believed in one true God. He believed that God provided authority in his word. In fact, 1 Kings tells us that Solomon was the wisest man of his own day. So then you ask the question, why does he speak about life as meaningless and monotonous? Why is everything vanity of vanities, even as he says in our own text this morning, striving after the wind? Well, it's because God had rewarded Solomon with wisdom. And therefore, Solomon was able to admit that life appears at times on the surface, apart from deeper reflection, as meaningless. But we know that Ecclesiastes is part of wisdom literature. And so by looking back on his life and all that he saw, Solomon was like an instructor of wisdom. And so his world-weary tone simply admits the fact that sinfully we can live without purpose. But such is not God's way. Such is not the right way. Such is not the path of wisdom. And therefore, as he admits the reality that some can live without meaning in their lives, and without purpose, Solomon points our gaze to a better and even simpler sort of way of living, a sort of life lived with God-intended meaning and purpose behind it. Think about Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. He wanted to live every moment and every day to the fullest. And Solomon teaches us both from the, the fact that he's writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the fact that he's writing according to his own experience that we can pursue life with meaning, 
We can have purpose in our lives if we follow the principles that he lays out. He approaches it from more of a negative angle. Jesus approached this from more of a positive angle. For example, Jesus said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Matthew 6, 33. That's sort of a positive way of saying what Solomon is saying. So the book of Ecclesiastes is a benefit to us because God is sovereign over his kingdom. And when we live with the simple trust in that truth and we follow after him, we will have purpose and meaning. But the flip side is that life is destined for you to be frustrating and empty and purposeless apart from recognizing his sovereignty and apart from seeking to be a faithful citizen in his kingdom. So let me ask you a question. Do you struggle with misplaced priorities in your life? Or does your life seem to lack meaning and purpose? Or are you weary from the rat race of life? If so, Solomon has advice. Here it is. Scale your life back. Focus on the simple. Be faithful. Enjoy life. And above all, enjoy the relationships that God has given you in your life. Only you can live your life. No one else can live it for you. So learn from the koheleth. Learn from the preacher, as he refers to himself, Solomon does, how to live well with meaning and purpose and calm assurance in God's providence. Now, let me just say a word about the vast disagreement on how Ecclesiastes is organized. There are many commentators that give up any attempt to even organize it or see any structure, and I find this sad. Remember, Solomon is a writer of the Proverbs, and many people view the Proverbs as is sort of an unconnected rambling of musings that someone would make on a haphazard Facebook post with no connection and no structure. But we know better. God is not incompetent to communicate his truth. He is certainly ordered and organized. And the writer of many of the Proverbs and the writer of Ecclesiastes is the same man, Solomon, and he's got a point to what he is saying. He wants us to understand you can have purpose and meaning in your life, but it requires you to make people a priority. I believe that is the theme of chapter 4. Solomon, the preacher, seems to hone in on the importance of relationships, and he explores four areas of life under the sun, four areas of life under the sun to tell us one practical nugget of wisdom, and that is this, people and relationships should be a priority over power and possessions. Let me repeat it. People, that is relationships, should be a priority over power and possessions. So he explores four areas. Let's look at these. Number one, he speaks about the area of citizenship in verses one through three. He begins very general. In considering life as a citizen, the preacher Solomon turns to the courtroom where he takes us to witness what was true in his own day. And here it was. He saw in his own day an example of people being exploited by the powerful. Notice he mentions the condition in verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. He describes the justice system as evidence of what was taking place in the larger society. He describes it as all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And he viewed this, the justice system of Israel as something that had evolved from the perfection of what God had it to be in creating it to now the perversion of how man had corrupted it in dishonesty. And while Solomon had great power, he was only one person. The fact of the matter is that Moses had set the standard of how to judge. Moses had said in the book of Leviticus that injustice was a sin and a crime. But in the country of Israel, in Solomon's day, the prophets would warn about the injustice of the government oppressing the people. The injustice of the wealthy oppressing the poor. And what exactly did Solomon see? Well, the condition was, verse 1, the tears of the oppressed and how no one was there to comfort them. Pretty sad. And then he saw on the side of their oppressors, verse 1, that there was power. And that power wasn't satisfactory because he says about the oppressors in verse 1 that there was no one there to comfort them either. Now, he's not wanting us to feel sorry for the oppressors, but he's simply saying there's emptiness. There isn't meaning and purpose when you are someone who oppresses and exploits other people. 
So he's taking us into the courtroom because the justice system was a microcosm of society at large. Power-hungry political operatives, we'll call them the elites, the oppressors, exploiting the weak, that is the oppressed, the citizenry. Daniel Webster called justice the ligament which holds civilized beings and nations together. Well, this society had torn its ligaments. It was limping. It had no integrity. It could not run the race of life well. And so he draws a twofold conclusion about what it meant to be a citizen and to be taken advantage of in verses 2 and 3. The first is verse 2. He says, And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. I mean, the power structure marked by corruption and injustice caused Solomon to conclude it's better to be dead than alive. And he doubles down, verse 3, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. He says, you know, upon second thought, let me say it would have been better if we were never born. This is almost like what George Bailey confessed in It's a Wonderful Life. I wished I had never been born because his circumstances were so intolerable. And in our own day, life at times does seem intolerable. I don't know if you've noticed, but inflation is at an all-time high. Gas prices are absurd. 57% of Americans don't have $1,000 to spend in case of an emergency. And corporations like Big Pharma are in cahoots with the government agencies like FDA and CDC. Even the CIA is spying on people and exploiting people. We are in a national crisis of epic proportions. We pay the most for our medical insurance than any country, and yet we are the sickest in the world. There is a national crisis of epic proportions. We have the mental health crisis. We have the drug epidemic, and yet the government says, we can help you. Bigger government is better. Let us give you more medicine that will lead to more suicides. Let's let more immigrants pour over our borders and destroy our country. And suicide rates are up, especially among young people, but not young people alone. Also older people that are now seeking medically assisted suicides. And you know, Solomon and all of his wisdom could have stepped in to try to fix this, but Solomon was wise enough. That too much government is a bad thing for the people. And so this sort of political aristocracy that makes billions in serving self-interest while the middle class is exploited and gets poorer has specific application to our own day. And it's not hard to be cynical. Maybe even say, I wish I'd never been born. And then we've got to deal with the illusion of the oppressed and the oppressor of the so-called social justice theory. This is nothing more than a cover for the government's oppression of its own citizenry, a cover that makes it look like they care for us and they want to bring us together. But all social justice does is tear us apart. The true oppressors are the government and the oppressed are the citizens. And you say, well, how do we bear up under these circumstances and live faithfully? How can we live with purpose when it seems all is lost? How can we live when it seems like people are at each other's throats? Well, I want you to turn with me to chapter 12 because he gives the answer in verse 13. It's this principle. Number one, live with integrity. Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. In other words, the Bible says live with integrity. Don't worry about what others say and what others think. Do the right thing. And secondly, trust in God's sovereignty. Verse 14, for God will bring every evil deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So the question is, do you trust God? Do you trust God to live with integrity, to trust his sovereignty? You know, in chapter 3, Ecclesiastes 3 speaks about there, there is a time for this and a time for that. There is a season for this and a season for that. So realize it may be a short winter or a long winter, but the spring of God's blossoming kingdom will eventually come. No one can thwart God's kingdom and God's people. So God's people above all must be the most loving people in the world. God's people of all must love each other more than anyone else to show the world that we have the love of Christ in our hearts and our lives. Now Solomon moves quickly from the subject of citizenship to the subject of stewardship. He's still speaking about having meaning and purpose in our lives in respect to our relationships, but he moves from citizenship 
verses 1 through 3, to stewardship, verses 4 through 8. Here he gives us some principles for faithful kingdom living. And in considering stewardship of one's time spent on earth, the preacher, the koaleth, Solomon, takes us from the courtroom scene now to the workplace. And he begins to describe four types of workers. And this relates to how they work with other people and how they treat other people. We spend most of our time at work. So most of our relationships are work relationships. So he hones in on that. And first he speaks about the person of industry. Notice the beginning of verse 4. He says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work was present in the workplace. So he's describing the first kind of worker. It's admirable. All toil and all skill in work. Toil speaks about manpower. Um, Skill speaks about the mastery of specialization of a skill. What is your skill? This man's hands are commendable. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 24, Solomon says there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, in his work. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Wow. So work is a gift from God. It's a worshipful thing to be industrious. It's honorable and manly to work hard for your living and for your family. In fact, 1 Timothy 5, 8 says you're worse than an infidel and you are denier of the faith if you're unwilling to work. So at the beginning of verse 4, he's commending toil and work. And it shouldn't surprise us. Adam was charged with working and keeping the garden. Our Lord was not only a carpenter, but then he became a preacher. The apostle Paul was not only a preacher, but he also made tents on his side as, as sort of a side hustle. Abraham was hardworking and wealthy. Solomon was hardworking and wealthy. Three cheers for all of this. But as it is the preacher's pattern, Solomon, he wants to show the vanity of life, the negative aspect. And so he points out in the beginning of verse 4, the industrious man's hands. But now he turns and he says, but what about his heart? What is motivating this workaholic? And Solomon says in verse 4 that this work comes, notice it, from a man's envy of his neighbor. How sad that is. And Solomon concludes and says this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. In other words, competing with others to keep up with the Joneses is not admirable or honorable. It is honorable to work hard, but you are to work hard for God's glory. Just like Adam worked hard to beautify the garden, but he did that not necessarily for himself, but for future generations. And just like the Apostle Paul would work and make tents on the side so as not to be a burden to the church and so as to have opportunities in the community, again, it was all about people. It wasn't about self. And at the heart of some who are hard workers, industrious fellows though they may be, is the sin of envy, that tendency for covetousness, a desire for power, a desire for money, maybe a desire to work so hard you don't have to work anymore. But it doesn't matter. We read it this morning. Coveting is a violation of the Ten Commandments, is it not? And even though that it is true that lazy people can covet just as well, hard workers are often motivated by envy. This was not so for William Carey. Before becoming a famous missionary, Carey was a shoe cobbler. And when he was accused of laziness for neglecting his business because of ministerial pursuits, he said, neglecting my business, my business is to extend the kingdom of God. I only cobble shoes to pay my expenses. In other words, the only thing Carey was envious of was the souls of others. He was envious for the glory of God. And Solomon's point, I think, about the hardworking man is that we have business to do, but our greatest business is to glorify God and to use our resources ultimately to help other people. That is the platform that we have to be an influencer for the kingdom of God like William Carey is. But Solomon turns to the second type of labor, the person of industry, verse 4, now to the person of idleness. This is the opposite. Notice your Bibles, verse 4. He says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. I mean, this is another way of saying that the person who doesn't work hard is foolish. He's participating in self-cannibalization. Instead of being consumed by work, The fool consumes himself by his own laziness, and such laziness leads to poverty. He has nothing, Solomon says, and he is nothing. This is striking, almost grotesque language of a lazy man eating himself. 
He has no food because he will not work. He has no food because he has no work, and he has no work because he won't work. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone would not work, neither should he what? Eat. So there's a contrast here. The hardworking man of verse 4 has productivity with his hands, but he doesn't have purity in his heart. He's marked by envy. And the lazy man has no productivity with his hands, and so he has nothing in his hands. One wanted to get out of the rat race to serve himself in retirement. The other one was never in the rat race. So what is the ideal? Well, he moves to verse 6 to the person of idealism. This is picturesque language of describing the ideal worker. Notice verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Here is the balanced man. Solomon is trying to say that the ideal way to view work in order for it to have meaning and purpose in our lives is to work hard enough to have a handful. But if you have more than a handful, watch out. If you have two handfuls, that causes trouble because a handful of quietness is better than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. What is he saying? He's saying that two handfuls of hard work will affect your life. You might work so hard that there is no quiet time and no downtime and no time to spend with other people. It can destroy your relationships. And by the way, are you giving back to the kingdom of God? Or are you holding two handfuls of money to yourself? So if you want to work hard, work hard. But you need to give some back. And if we aren't careful, we can waste our resources. We can be selfish, selfish, not glorify God, not give back to God and give back to others. And when we don't glorify God and give back, we are guilty, as he says in verse 6, of toil and striving after wind. He's saying that workaholics and lazy people will have no purpose and meaning in their lives. They've lost true focus. As one commentator says, and I quote, The industrious man thinks that money will bring him peace, but he has no time to enjoy his peace. The idle man thinks that doing nothing will bring peace, but his lifestyle only destroys him. But the ideal man, the man of verse 6, enjoys both his labor and the fruit of his labor, and he balances toil with rest. You can take what you want from life, but either way, you must pay for it. The ideal worker is marked by this quietness, verse 6. We could say rest and recreation. He has a quiet contentment. Contentment that he works hard for his money with integrity. Contentment that he can take time for a respite to catch his breath, because sometimes less is more. And a hard worker is best when he is content to let some money go for the sake of his family, content to let some money go for the sake of the kingdom of God, not to grab for money with both hands, but to be a servant for God, working hard and having a handful of him for himself, but having another hand in which he can be quiet and relax and give back to God. His hands aren't folded like the lazy man, but neither are his hands always grabbing for more with envy. You know, the Bible speaks in James chapter 12 that people who are full of envy and quarrels and constant friction are some of the most selfish people in the world, and it's only a matter of time before they show themselves to the world. The truth of the matter is this. There can be money-hungry people, and there can be people that are misers. Both are lovers of money, both are selfish, both are unbiblical, but what is the ideal? Well, the ideal worker is at peace with God and he's at peace with others because he's at peace with himself. His work ethic and his freedom to take occasional Sabbath rests is a priority. Proverbs fifteen sixteen: better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and treasure and trouble with it. You need to be like the little girl who misquoted Psalm 23, but spoke better than she knew. Instead of saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, she said, the Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. And whether we recognize it or not, whether Jesus is all we want or not, the reality is He's all we need. So there needs to be a level of hard work on the one hand, but there needs to be a level of rest on the other. Now, the person of industry and the person of idleness and the person of idealism leads us 
to the fourth person, and this is the person of independence. Notice verses 7 and 8. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Solomon says this also is vanity and unhappy business. This speaks of a man so rigorous in his work ethic that he only works alone because other people only get in his way. He's a pull-me-up-by-my-bootstraps kind of person, so independent that he has so much money that he doesn't need anyone else. In fact, money is the only thing that's close to him. His wallet and his bank account is his only family. No relatives, no friends, no business associates. And Solomon says, when you live that way, this is vanity and an unhappy business, and you will not be happy and will not have meaning and purpose to your life. Consider it, at least the man of industry employed others to help create jobs, right? At least the idle man had some downtime and didn't have so much stress in his life, even though he was lazy. But the man of independence is such a free spirit, he's free from any meaningful relationships in his life. And the way Solomon says it here is he is one person who has no other. What a sad thing to read on someone's tombstone. Well, it's from these examples we learn that life is about more than power and possessions. And in verses 7 and 8, that last little man that is mentioned, the man of independence, that is transitional now to lead to the heart of what Solomon wants to tell us. You're actually more familiar with verses 9 through 12 than you might think. But let's go there and look. The preacher is giving meaning and purpose to life, moving from citizenship, what it means to be a citizen, how important people are. We don't take advantage of them. He moves from citizenship to stewardship, how we live our life and balance work and play now to fellowship. Verses 9 through 12. And in speaking about the sadness of the person of independence in verses 7 and 8, it leads Solomon to speak about the value of companionship and fellowship. And this morning, I cannot express enough. I understand this is a simple sermon. I understand I'm speaking in simple language. But I cannot be clear enough this morning that friendship and fellowship and companionship is absolutely vital in your life. And if you have a track record of destroying every relationship, that is not a good thing. And I've known people throughout my life, when you study the history, no wonder there's broken relationships. There's broken relationships with almost everyone they've known. And they just go from one group to the next group to the next group. And sometimes they church hop and they cause problems in the church. How do we avoid that? Friendship and companionship that's based in Christ. And there are four ways that fellowship is beneficial. First of all, we see in verses 9 through 12, That companionship is important because we are companions in working. Notice verse 9. He just talked about working, right? In the previous verses. Now he says in verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. You've heard that verse being quoted many times. It simply means double the toil, double the reward. That a man without companions is like a left hand without a right hand. Two are better than one. And, of course, we believe in monergism, that salvation is all a one-way work of God. But we do believe in synergism when it comes, as Reformed people, to relationships. Because we need to learn how to get along with other people and to work together. Two are better than one, Solomon says in verse 9. Two are better than one, we could say, in a business. Why? Because two workers create a larger profit. Two are better than one in a marriage. Why? Well, it's obvious it takes two to make a thing go right. Two are better than one at church. You must have a plurality of elders. That's at least two. And you've got to have people that love one another. And two are better than one, even in the simple illustration of a team. The value of team sports is a microcosm of life because working together to win, competing for a cause bigger than yourself, shows the value of companionship and fellowship. So Solomon says, mark it. Two are better than one because it leads to more accountability, more accomplishments, more analysis. That is smarter decisions. There is wisdom in numbers because there's strength in numbers. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to have a good marriage by yourself? How did that go? Genesis chapter 2 says it is not good that the man be alone. And therefore we need companionship. Have you ever tried to live your Christian life in isolation? How did that go for you? Two is always better than one. Companions in working 
together, working with one another. But now he speaks about the fact that fellowship is important, not only because we can have companions in working, but secondly, companions in failing. Now we see this in verse 10. This might seem odd, but notice your Bible in verse 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. It seems weird on the surface that we talk about failing together. Well, let me just tell you, when you are alone, failing is not good. But have you ever been on a team at work or a sports team in which you all failed miserably, but there's always the person with confidence that picks other people up around them so you can press on? There is strength in that. And here, I think he's speaking about travelers traveling together because he speaks about falling. And ancient roads were filled with pebbles and stones and even pits. You remember, we'll call them potholes, but really they were pits. You remember the story of Joseph. There was a caravan passing by when he was in a pothole or a pit and his brothers took him out and sold him into slavery to the caravan that was passing by. That's the imagery here. True friends don't sell out. True friends don't betray. True friends aren't disloyal. They will lift up his fellow, as verse 10 says. Verse 10 is metaphorical to communicate how friends help each other in time of need. And I love to say this, a real friend is someone who walks in when everybody else walks out. Corey and I started our relationship as friends. And I can tell you that if a friendship lasts... A marriage will last. And the only way to have a friend sometimes is to be a friend. When my mother put me in kindergarten, I had just turned five years old. My best friend was Jeremy Akers. You can have a best friend when you're five, I guess. He was six, and it was his last chance to enter kindergarten because he was getting too old. And so my mom was pressured. She put me in. I was the smallest kid in the class, the skinniest kid in the class, the youngest kid in the class. And the first day we had recess and I walked out the doors and I lost sight of my friend Jeremy Akers. He had red hair and he was easy to pick out, but everyone was so tall. And I remember thinking, I'm never going to see anyone I know again. And I'm walking on the playground and there was this little girl up on this piece of equipment. And I looked up at her and I said, will you be my friend? And she looked down at me and she said, no. (laughs) My first rejection. Everyone needs a friend. Life is hard. And the Christian life is even harder. That's why we need fellowship. To encourage one another. What does Hebrews say? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Why? Because you need to gather together to encourage one another. Proverbs 18.24 A man of many companions may come to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You're not going to be equally strong in every relationship you have. I'll just tell you that right now. And the more responsibility you have, the larger your family, the larger your church, the larger your network of people, the less close relationships you're going to have. But the close ones that you do have, they will stick closer than a brother. There is very little in my life that I would give up and giving up relationships. That is a very painful thing for me. And it takes a lot. You've got to push me pretty hard for me to ditch you. You've got to believe the wrong thing and be adamant about it. You've got to be living in immorality or you've got to be walking with a lack of integrity. And if those things happen, I may ditch you. But as Christians, here's the reality. We don't ditch one another, do we? We lift one another out of the ditch. And that's the point of verse 10. You need to take very seriously your relationships. And before you burn bridges, think very clearly and carefully about answering before the Lord for what you will do. That is what Solomon is saying. He's saying that we have companions in working. We even have companions in failing. We have companions also in comforting. Verse 11, again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now, I don't think this is any reference to the sexual life. Because this is a reference to two travelers who are traveling at night. And they have to stop on the side of the road. There are no hotels. And so what do they do? Well... They sleep close side by side, so they keep warm. That's what Solomon is saying. There are potholes around. Maybe you get in one of those potholes and you get close together and you warm each other up. I do that all the time with my wife. 
because she is warm on a cold winter's night and I'm cold. But you know, the beauty of traveling life together in marriage is that it's a partnership. When one is cold, the other is what? Warm. An old Swedish proverb, shared joy is a double joy and shared sorrow is only half a sorrow. Companions are important. Comforting one another with warm words, they go a long way. We need the encouragement of Christian companionship. And so Solomon is saying companions in working, companions in failing, companions in comforting, and verse 12, companions in fighting. Now, I'm not talking about fighting against one another, but fighting with. Notice verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone... Two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. I quoted this verse this past week when I officiated a, a, a wedding between two people, particularly the end. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so I think what Solomon is saying here is that instead of Christians fighting, they need to be unified. Instead of Christians living by the motto that sounds just as antiquated as it is irrelevant, I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or run with those that do. Rather, the Christian should live by verse 12. Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Where there's fellowship, there's unity in the body of Christ. Solomon began by speaking about the independent man, one person in verse 8. He then moved in verses 9 through 11 to speak about two people. And now in verse 12, he's speaking about three people. Notice he says, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. He's saying this by way of metaphor. One cord is easily broken. Two requires a little more strength, but a threefold cord is not easily broken. Three cords represent three friends or three companions. He's saying there's strength In numbers, we aren't supposed to fight with one another. We're supposed to fight with the enemy. And we're supposed to fight together against the enemy. You know that beautiful passage in Ephesians chapter 6? Paul describes the church not as a one-man army. He speaks about us together putting on all of that spiritual armor. And then he says in verse 18 that we have God on our side, praying at all times in the Spirit. And that's why, although Solomon doesn't name the identity of that third metaphorical cord or person, a threefold cord is not quickly broken, could it be a reference to God himself? If he's saying that it's God, then he's saying this. Listen, two Christian companions really equals three because you have to figure God into the equation and the power of God. And what did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, You are my friends. You are my friends. So over and over again in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, whether it's the topic of citizenship or stewardship or fellowship, Solomon the preacher tells us that life only has meaning and purpose when the people around us are a priority over power and possessions. But he takes us to a fourth important point. He moves from citizenship and stewardship and fellowship now to speak about leadership in verses 13 through 16. And the preacher, Solomon, a king himself, provides a parable about a king. Now, was this a story about himself and his family of kings? I think it might be likely. Notice the comparison in verse number 13, he says, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. He's simply comparing an old king with a young rising king. Okay, so the comparison is between between an old man waning in his years and a new, young, unexpected king on the rise. That's the comparison. Now, notice the conclusion that he makes in verse 14. For he, that is the young man, went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. Now, Solomon was raised in a palace. He wasn't poor. So I don't think this is a reference to Solomon, the young King Solomon. This is a reference to the young King David. The rising of David. David was a poor shepherd with a shepherd's staff before being crowned king and given a golden scepter. 
And so the young man is David, who unexpectedly comes to power. He kills Goliath. He becomes a king from the poor shepherd fields. He takes over for Saul, who kind of lost, lost his mind at the end. He takes over. And he now becomes an old man himself, David does. Notice verse 15, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place, but there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Who are those that come later? Those who came later at the end of David's reign. And now Solomon takes over. And who took over after Solomon but another king, Rehoboam? And so what is he saying? He's saying that the cycle of leadership with at least respect to kings is this. One dies, another replaces him. One is fresh and new and vibrant, but after a while the people get sick of it. They want a new leader. This is the human nature. And so Solomon is saying if you are a leader focused on building your own kingdom or you're an aspiring leader planning to do the same, you will not have meaning and purpose in your life even if you are the most powerful king who has ever lived. Just look at the nation of Israel. Look at Saul and David and Solomon and on down the line. One died, another came up. One did well and people criticized every decision that was made. Now, I think there are too many lessons to count, and Solomon knows that. He just leaves this parable, in terms of application, open-ended. So we're left at a little bit of theological guesswork. He leaves it open-ended. But he does say, surely this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Do you see that at the end of verse 16? He's saying that your own personal kingdom will not last. If you are a leader, you've got to be about something way bigger than yourself. Way bigger than yourself. What does it teach us? Well, Number one, I think it teaches us that leadership is fleeting. Leadership is fleeting. So serve the people as their leader. Don't serve yourself. I put it in very practical language. Don't use others to create a platform to become world-renowned. Just be faithful and humble, and serve, because leadership is not a rat race in which people view you as someone great. It's better to disappoint thousands and please God than to please one person, but disappoint God Almighty. Oliver Cromwell seized the British throne from Charles I. He was a Christian. He established the commonwealth, but he never got caught up in the notoriety. He told a friend one time, do you see those cheering crowds? The friend said, yes. He says, do not trust those cheering crowds. For those persons would shout as much as if you and I were going to be hanged. What was he saying? He's saying, if you make leadership about yourself, you're going to be disappointed. You're not going to have meaning and purpose. It's got to be about something bigger than yourself. Leaders come and leaders go. God is sovereign. Leadership is fleeting. Secondly, leadership is about following. Leadership begins to mark a life when one is teachable and when one has learned to follow others. You know, it's the armchair leaders who on Monday morning criticize who will never be leaders themselves because they've never learned what it means to follow someone else. David understood that. Solomon understood that. Good leaders are the first to be taught, they're the first to follow, they're the first to to learn, and they are patient, just like the great leader Joshua in the Old Testament, who is a figure of Christ. He is a picture of Christ. He wasn't a perfect leader, he had many failings, but he is a picture of Christ, and he even shares Christ's name. And Jesus fulfills what it means to be a great leader, the greatest of all leaders. What marked Joshua's life was patience. He was willing to follow Moses until the funeral occurred, and then he took over. Leadership is fleeting. Leadership is about following. And finally, leadership is about faithfulness. I just mentioned the most important leader, Jesus Christ. I think that verses 13 through 16 is a subtle allusion to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know why? Luke 2.52 says, And Jesus 
increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus is the man born in poverty and obscurity who was exalted to everlasting glory. And I think there's a subtle allusion to King Jesus, his rise from poverty, his rise from the unexpected to take over God's people. And even what happened in Jesus' life at the beginning of his last week, the people were heralding him as the king. And by week's end, there were those who came to borrow the language of verse 16. There was those who came later who did not rejoice in him, but they wanted Jesus crucified. This is about Jesus ultimately. Leadership is fleeting, leadership is about following, and leadership is about faithfulness. Jesus is the greatest example of what it means to be a leader. He was willing to obey his parents. He was willing to follow the elders and the temple. Jesus was willing to be patient until his time came. What a practical application that is for us. And when he was a leader, he wasn't domineering. When he was a leader, he was loving and gentle. He didn't create enemies, even though others made him an enemy. He kept keeping on. And he persevered. So make people a priority. Whether it's in the area of citizenship. Treating people in society. As a fellow image bearer of Christ. Whether it is treating people in the workplace. Regarding stewardship and your family a certain way. Whether, whether you have to. In the church setting. With regard to fellowship. Reach out and become closer to other people and make them feel warmer. Or maybe it's in the area of leadership. How are you treating other people? You know, on that day, God is not going to ask what kind of car you drove. He's going to ask how many people you drove in that car. God's not going to ask the square footage of your house, but how many people you welcomed into your house. God's not going to ask you about the clothes you had in your closet, but how many you helped clothe. He's not going to ask you about your highest salary, but if you compromised your character to get that. And he's not going to ask you how many friends you had, but how many people you were a friend to. He's not going to ask you what your job title was, because he's going to ask you if you did your job to the best of your ability. And he's not going to ask you what sort of neighborhood you lived in, but how you treated your neighbor. Ecclesiastes 4 is all about relationships. People must be a priority over power and privilege and possessions. Gentleness and humbleness are to mark the people of God. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.